Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Lin Gao, CEO and co-founder of Caper. Caper's mission is to build technology to enable autonomous retail using computer vision and deep learning. The company's first product, the Caper Cart, took headlines by storm when it was released, touted as an Amazon Go competitor. So Lin, thank you for joining us. Started from the basics, who are you? Well, Rahul, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. I graduated from NYU Stern. I've been a zero entrepreneur, but after I graduated college, the first chosen career I've decided to, to embark on was becoming an investment banker. And I hopped on the bandwagon with other NYU Sterns. So I started in uh, Goldman as a part of their leverage finance and that capital markets group. And then subsequently, I went on to JP Morgan, uh, mergers and acquisitions banker. After about two and a half years of investment banking, I realized that maybe finance really isn't for me because I'm someone who really likes to create things, solve really difficult problems. So I decided that instead of going to private equity, which is a very standard investment banking route, I've decided to leave my job and join and actually just to start my own business. So starting from the very beginning, it was a very, very interesting journey. We started out by building a technology that is similar to security tech, you know, those that kind of beeps at the door if you try to steal in Zara, those attached to the garments. Okay. Yeah. We've made one such that it will unlock upon payment. So you will walk into the store, use your phone, pay for it, and then tap the security tag, and then you're good to go. And what we have done with that, it was a very preliminary prototype, and luckily we got an interview with YC. So we, you know, after we got the interview, I just decided that I was going to quit my job and I was just going to pursue it. So I quit and I flew to LA, met up with my hardware co-founder who built the hardware prototype and then my software co-founder who built the software components of it. And uh, we went, we went for the interview. Pretty interesting story at the time when we built a security tag, I think there was a bug in the code. So it had a 50% chance of unlocking the tag. <laughs> so we were at the YC demo day. It was a, sorry, YC interview. It was 10 minutes long. And we realized that if it messes up at that moment, we would probably not get into YC. But we did the demo anyways, and thankfully it, the tag unlocked. And you know the YC partners were very impressed. We did a lot of customer research and showed a little bit of traction within the two months that we founded the company. So we got into YC. So kind of fast forward that until the end of YC, we have came up with the hardware that's ready for mass production. We sent on a few customers, but when we fundraised, we were at the bottom of our batch. We came out with raised maybe like two, three hundred K at most over a period of six months. And that was it. So it was pretty difficult, but I kept telling my, my co-founders, hey, like you guys, you know, stick around, we got this. We could, we could get some retailers to pay and we'll be good. So, you know, they stuck around. We lived in a house in San Jose for about well over nine months or so. And we realized that a lot of our clients were in New York. So we moved to New York and we worked on security tech about for about a year and a half until we realized that it wasn't viable. So we had to scratch all of our code and just completely change everything 
for a pivot. That was extremely risky. And was the pivot lens purely because of the code only functioning about half the time at that point? No, 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 no. It was it was fun functioning 100% at that point, but it wasn't scalable because if we want to enable a cashierless apparel store, you actually need to attach the security tag onto every single garment yeah. inside the store. And that was a huge operational overhaul for the retailers and no one wanted to do it. And, you know, we would do a small scale pilot and the retailers would realize, oh, this is too much work. We're not going to be able to get this done. The labor that I put in there is more than whatever I can save. So that was really ultimately what kind of propelled us uh, to pivot into the caper that we know today. So the aim was always, even when you were starting off with the security tag, to go into this cashierless domain, or that was the general vision? Yeah, that was the general vision because we felt that this autonomous retail industry is going to be gigantic. Retail has been around for however long, you know, as humans have existed. And we have, retail format and technology has really not invaded. Yeah. It has stayed stagnant for hundreds of years. And we felt that it was a very untapped market and an extremely large industry. I do want to rewind a bit to the point of when you were a banker previously and you said, you know, I think that I don't want to do finance anymore. Maybe I want to be more on the product side and start a company. Do you remember what series of events led to that inflection point um, in your thought process? Or was there a specific event that happened? You're like, hey, you know, I'm done with this at this point. Specifically for me, I've been in some of the most intense groups in, in these uh, in the investment banks. And, you know, 100 hours is like an average. Typically, you know, it could you know, it could go up to 120, 140 hours a week. And basically I'm just like in the office all the time. Yeah. And, you know, at, at, at one point there was a lot to learn and people were really, really smart. So I ramped up really quickly. I gained a lot of institutional knowledge around investment banking, but at the same time, you know, I had really back, back problems and it was extremely difficult to actually pull these hours and it required a lot of willpowers. I kept thinking to myself, if I'm really going to put that amount of hours into work, and I, I am a workaholic, so I actually really love working. And if I'm going to really put that amount of hours, why don't I just put it into something that I'm passionate about and something that furthers my own vision of what the future would, would look like instead of moving money you know, around financial institutes and companies. And uh, I'm glad you did. Uh, I'm glad you went through with that thought process because otherwise we would have not have had uh, the caper cart, which I've actually had the pleasure of using in one of the partner locations. But for those that may not know, or the very, very few that may not know at this point, how does the caper cart actually work? And what is the value prop behind the cart? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about caper, it's basically, uh, you guys have heard about, about Amazon Go, but a lot of the core technologies around computer vision and sensor fusion we also have in our carts. The cart is equipped with uh, three cameras, weight sensors, and, and a mixture of uh, many numerous other sensors. Alongside, it has a screen that interfaces with the customers and also a scanner that scans barcodes. So the first versions that we have launched with, and probably the one that you've tried out, is the one with a barcode scanner where you can directly take the item, scan the barcode, and then put it inside the cart. Effectively, what happens every single time you scan something is that it's, it's collecting images that collects over 120 images of this item. One of the biggest topics and most difficult thing about computer vision isn't always the algorithm itself, but the images. 
So, you know, inside a typical store, you have well over 50 to 100,000 items. And these items are updated on a you know, monthly basis. So collecting a huge database of images is critically important. So hence, we push out the first version of where customers are uh, scanning these items. And just to kind of wrap, wrap it up there, you know, you can scan your items, you can weigh produce in directly inside the basket. And once you're done, you're able to directly pay on the cart and leave the store. But circling back into the computer vision side of things, the ultimate vision of what we're trying to do is that in the future, you could just grab a cable cart and you could just directly toss items inside a basket without scanning the item. Um, and we will leverage computer vision and sensor fusion to directly identify the items as they're being placed inside the cart. So however you're shopping today, which is you go into a store, grab a shopping cart, toss items in, we want shoppers to have exactly the same experience, exhibit the same behavior as what they're used to, but except at the end of the transaction, they could directly pay on the cart and leave the store. And that's what we envision the future to be like in, uh, in the grocery shopping environment. Got it. Okay. So you have this vision, cashierless checkout, this autonomous feature of retail. You decide, you know, the cart is the right way to go. One thing I've always wondered is where did you get the name Caper from? <laughs> you know, we started out with thinking about a couple of names. We wanted to be like, you know, something called Skip, Skipping the Line. Yeah. Our previous product we call the queue hop hopping the queue but when we decided to build caper we knew that it was going to be a, a mass consumer type of product brand because you know average shoppers they shop about 1.6 times a week yeah and we want this to resonate not only with the shoppers but also with the retailers so caper at its at its face the most common meaning is you know the garnish that you put with your salmon as a grocery item very common and just a very generally a very friendly friendly and familiar term for everyone. But there's uh, two additional hidden meanings behind caper, which we really love. And that was why we picked it. The first one is it, a caper is a dance. So it's kind of like skip around freely. And that's kind of what we wanted to convey to the shopper that shopping in a convenience store, in a grocery store should be so cheerful that you can skip around freely, you can skip across the line so you don't have to line up. And the second part is a heist. Uh, so if, you know, we want Caper's experience to feel like, you know, it's, it's so seamless, so smooth, that feels like stealing. And so we have the three three layer of meanings behind Caper. And, you know, that's how the name was born. So there's two common things in the value, which I really like. One, that there's not enough innovation going on in atoms as opposed to bits. And the second, more relevant to you directly, is that hardware is hard. So what does it take to build an AI-powered shopping cart? Is the hardware hard? The hardware is really hard. You know, I typically would not recommend any founder to just build hardware. We started building hardware because we just didn't know better. If I were to rewind four years ago and, you know, to tell my past self that something valuable, I think I would definitely tell them hard, building hardware is going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. And especially building a computer vision, sensor fusion, hardware on top of a hardware that is traditionally banged up in a grocery store that makes that makes it especially hard because you have you have two very different components here one is that you have computer vision sensor fusion that ex requires extreme sensor accuracy so basically in extreme conditions every single weight readings uh, inside the car needs to be accurate otherwise it messes up certain sensor fusion systems in our system and then on the other side you have customers throwing like you know, 
50 pounds of box of water into the car and just smashes it. Uh, they ram against the wall, you know, throw, toss it around the parking lot, and these cars are left outside in the rain, in the, in the winter, in the cold, in, in Arizona summers and heat, and it, and it all needs to be extremely durable. So it really took a lot of time for us to figure out the hardware that is strong enough to endure all of this while reading all the really essential um, sensor readings. And how long did it take to actually get to that first prototype where you're like, hey, this thing works? So frankly, it, it, did, it wasn't difficult to get to the first prototype. That took about, the first prototype probably took about three, four months. Okay. And we would build something that was very bearable and that was fairly usable. And then we build, quickly built our second version probably three months later. And then we built our third version probably another three to four months later. And we launched in the first in our first store food seller with our third version. And so altogether, just developing that hardware in itself was only probably nine, nine months to a year at most. But the, diff- the difficulty was what came after that, which is after we launched, we realized that our hardware was breaking left and right. It was sensors, readings was off, and we realized that there was a regulatory compliance because weight sensors, you're using it to weigh your produce, and your and the produce price pricing is based on the accuracy of the scale. So we needed to get uh, weights and measures certification from the government, and they have a very specific criteria for the amount of accuracy the car needs to achieve. And yeah, like all around, it was you know hardware was very hard to build, and then bringing the hardware from a sample, a demo unit into mass production is another layer of difficulty because when you think about how do we build a mold, how do we make sure that at mass, ascent, uh, at mass production, this is easy to assemble. Uh, and we're building a very, very large hardware too. So considering yeah. every detail is gonna be, was critically important. So that part probably took us about more than a year to a year and a half to figure out. And I wanna double click on that, Lynn. So I'm assuming the carts are manufactured outside the US, correct? Mm-hmm. What are some things that you'd say specifically around the manufacturing and shipping process that aspiring entrepreneurs that want to do something around hardware often overlook or may overlook? So hardware around shipping, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that it was, is too complicated. It's extremely expensive. So you want to minimize the amount of frequency you want to ship things in batch. But around kind of specifically logistics packaging is something that we need to be very careful of because when we start doing freight shipments, they put these containers into oceans and you know it's it's also exhibiting high heat temperatures and some of our early shipments have came in damaged. So thinking investing money and time into the correct packaging that could with withstand all these difficult environments is going to be critically important. And in terms of the actual manufacturing process, what advice would you have around that in terms of, or I guess, how did you navigate that process in terms of finding a manufacturer? I'm assuming there's like cash injection molding somewhere around the process too. finding someone that's actually willing to take the design and saying like, Hey, I'm going to produce this car. Like, what was that process like? In, in mass production, because split, uh, split this up into a couple of components. The first component is prototyping. You need to have a very, very strong, you need to have a good prototype. So there is something something called the EVT 
DBT and PBT process, which is actually some what, what a lot of hardware companies follow in their development process. Basically, you start with a prototype, and then you verify that this thing works, and then you start by building something a little more sophisticated, more mass production aligned. You verify your assumptions to make sure that it's performing to your key acceptance criteria. And the last part is the, P, the PBT, which is the production design, where you have to design for mass production. Demo uh, prototyping process itself could take anywhere between three to 12 months, depending on how fast you could do it. Typically, we do hardware prototyping with very, very small shops. These are shops that typically wouldn't, you know, they, they don't have large enough of clients. So they have, they're basically happy to take on any projects that, that comes their way and okay. they're hungry and they're happy to do work for you. You know, go through the initial prototyping stage stages very quickly to verify that it's performing the key things. For example, we we want certain IP grades for waterproof. Make sure this is done in our in your prototype and verify before going to mass production. So once you have all these criteria ready, typically uh, what people do is they they engage with factories uh, to do what they call the design for manufacturing. And design for manufacturing is a process where basically the manufacturer or a, a design shop would take your entire design, take it apart, and just rebuild it based on what exactly is best for mass production that can meet all of your criteria while minimizing cost while making it easy for assembly and, and the creation of injection molding. So that's kind of design mass production part. And it's really important to source during that phase because Working with manufacturers is extremely tricky. Manufacturers would typically will not be interested to work with you unless you have a large volume. Yep. Uh, if you have the first thing you bring it to them is they're going to ask you, hey, like how how many units are you going to produce in the next 12 months? It, it depends on the quantity of your hardware. If it's, you know, if you're saying like, oh, 100 units, 1,000 units, they're going to laugh at you and tell you to, to find someone else. So uh, that period is where really the CEO really needs to go visit the factories and sell them the vision. Basically, you would tell them, look, if you invest in us, if you invest in our vision and work with us, I mean, we'll pay you, but we're going to get to that volume. And when we do get to that, that volume, you're going to get paid really well because we are going to work with whoever that trusted us in the beginning. And we did a lot of rounds around the factories just to make sure that these retailers are on board and you really have to sell your vision on why your product is going to work and that was really ultimately what helped us because you know we were not in the position to produce tens of thousands of shopping carts we wanted to produce a couple hundred just to make sure that these things work and a lot of the suppliers helped us to get through that stage i think that's really important for aspiring hardware entrepreneurs to hear so in the domain of cashierless checkout, there's a bunch of players now with many that surfaced after Caper, including Standard Cognition, Zipin, Grab&Go, Imager, and Vive. What made you think you could take on Amazon? And I ask that because I think it takes a certain personality to drive what you're after, which obviously you have. But what I want to do with this question is two things. One, share how you thought about going after the opportunity you know, did the investors that you spoke with think you're a lunatic for going after Amazon? And the second part, deconstruct the required ingredients to become a Lin Gao, besides making it on Forbes 30 under 30. You know, for us, when we think about the overall retail market, especially with Amazon in this market, it creates a very interesting dynamic because 
Amazon came out with Amazon Go, and that really puts, puts them on the map uh, for their reputation, their innovation. And going against that is extremely difficult. Uh, you know, it's, it's difficult. You cannot be Amazon oppressed because they're always oppressed. Following that, there are a couple of competitors in, the, in this field, each with their own thesis of, of what works. I think for us, what was most important is that what really shaped how our product was developed was it was kind of shaped by my investment banking background, which is if we're going to build something, it needs to have a return on investment. Uh, we were extremely focused on making sure that we're building a tech that gets the return on investment for retailers and it generates good return for, for ourselves. But putting our clients' return on, on investment in line was top priority, and that, that was really where it worked. Before Amazon Go came out, we actually already had this autonomous retail idea. So we're going around New York City and asking all the grocery store owners, hey, exactly what do you guys want? What are some of your top pain points? They talk about lines being their top pain points. They talk about not having enough customer traffic as their top pain points. They want a more high-touch customer experience. And, and we're saying, hey, look, what if we come in and install cameras around your uh, store, put, put smart shelves? That was essentially what, exactly what Amazon built it. And to our surprise, we asked 150 store owners and nobody wanted it. No, not a single one. They said, hey, don't touch my store. If you're going to renovate my store, if you're going to install cameras all over my ceiling and this thing don't work, it's going to cost me a lot. And even if this thing does work, what's the implication behind my operational overhaul? How should I be doing my inventory? Should I be training my machine learning algorithm every single day just so that every single inventory is in there because that's a hell of a lot, a lot of items. And all these concerns really reminded me of essentially why our first product didn't work, which is QHOP, which is operational overhaul for retailers is a no-go. These people have been running their business the same way for more than 30, 50 years and telling them to change into something that's extremely high-tech, that's drastically different from how they operate today is just impossible. There's no way. They say, even if you give me the technology for free, I, I wouldn't want it. And so I asked them, so what do you guys want? And they said, hey, just give me something that just works magically. So, you know, that's how we arrived to our thesis of cards. And that, that's where we were separated from everyone else in this field because we had this insight and knowledge of customer feedback to really guide us in the, at the very early stages. And I think that's really our, our magic sauce here. We started really early in this industry and we, we know exactly what customers want. We're extremely focused on product and return on investment for retailers. To answer the second part of your question, I think what really made me who I am today are probably two things. Number one is that I am extremely stupid and ignorant <laughs> because if I were smarter, I would, I would probably have given up on that. You know, ignorance is a bliss. And I believed in a vision and I stupidly still believe in it and I will keep going until I make it happen. And the second part I think is grit. A lot of the times startup volatility is high and low and particularly for us in developing a deep type technology, it's hard in that there are research milestones. On top of that, there are retailer milestones and we're selling to enterprise and we're building a B2B scene business. So that means that we're selling to a very difficult group of, of people and we need to deliver a product that is delightful, that lives up to the standards of your regular consumers. And fundraising was very difficult for us along the way as well, but we powered through and we built a really, really strong team around that. 
just, I guess, to go back to one of your previous points, I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. And then I think a lot of times what people overlook with hardware is that, yes, it is hard, but that is also your moat. If I wanted to start a caper today, I'd have to think twice about what you've already done in terms of incremental hardware innovation and what you've taken away from that as a lesson, which makes it much more difficult than just pumping out some piece of software and getting it done. Coming to the point of your customers, what I did want to touch upon is what you do a lot at the end of the day in terms of sales is enterprise sales. So how did you actually land your first client? It's not like you can just walk into a grocery store or bodega and be like, hey, I want to put this thing in your store. There is some corporate level with especially the partners that you have where you have to have that dialogue in terms of what is your data strategy today in terms of hardware? Is this a vision that, you know, that I can get you to buy into? So, yeah, how did you land your first customer at the end of the day? This is actually really funny. <laughs> we did walk into a store and ask, and ask people, uh, you know, do you, do you want a shopping cart? Uh, we have done that quite a lot around the city, and that was really how we built our initial network. We started with nothing. We have no connections in the grocery industry, and all of our connection was built through our door-to-door -door visits. Once we have a little bit of industry connections and a couple of store owners who were bought into our vision, then we started expanding from that network uh, because, you know, grocery or just any enterprise level structure, once you have some sort of report and people see that you're a young entrepreneur aspiring to do something, they naturally have the tendencies to help you. And that's effectively what we have done as we kind of scale our connections. Another interesting, what I would call hack in landing scoring enterprise customers is that LinkedIn is a very powerful tool. Find the specific people that you want to target in an organization and send them a really, really personalized note. And, you know, your hit rate could be, you know, two, three percent typically. But if you reach out to 100 people and two to three people reply to you and they're interested, it, it goes a long way. So really, really just keep working at the numbers. Enterprise sales is a numbers game. I think sales in general is a, is, is a numbers game. It's how willing are you to put yourselves out there to make connections with other people and to reach out to more people. And I think that's really good for everyone to know. So going back to this one point that you had mentioned before, you know, in terms of actually selling into the enterprise, what excites me about the cart particularly is how you're able to leverage data and provide sales lift for your clients. You know, if I put pasta in my cart, I can be served a discount for pasta sauce or have a recipe on my screen, which at an aggregate level will nudge some customers to increase their cart value. For those that are trying to integrate with legacy POS and backend systems, how difficult is it to get a partner's inventory data out of that actual system? And what I want to dig into here are the data challenges of starting a business like Caper. Mm. This is arguably one of the most difficult components of building a startup, especially in the enterprise or like when you look at general enterprise retail. It's in integrating with their point of sale systems is extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, you need buy-ins from the retailers executives to be able to motivate the point of sale systems to integrate with you. So there's really no magic in here apart from just doing a brute force. A lot of the times if we want to integrate with a particular point of sale systems, we would talk to one retailer and this retailer will ping the point of sale systems. And you know, if this retailer is small enough that the point of sale systems don't care if 
don't care to talk to, uh, they will shut us off and just say, hey, what am I going to do? So what we would do is we'll ping a lot of these retailers that have the same point of sale systems and get them to push all at, all at once. And building that level of, it becomes scalable over time as you do more and more of these. But a tip for a lot of early entrepreneurs, having building the right infrastructure early on for your integration is going to be critical for your scaling strategies later on. And in terms of someone, I guess, that has scaled fantastically over the years, Amazon. So they announced last month that they'd be piloting the Dash Cart. I'll start off right off the bat by saying they could have really used some help in the design department because it's an eyesore. But aesthetics aside, what was your first reaction when you saw that headline? And what does it mean for the business today? When we saw the headline, it was a lot of mixed feelings. I think, shoot, like, wow, like, now Amazon is in our domain. Yeah. But then we, we kind of sat down and we thought about it and we realized that this was good news for us. <laughs> it's a giant compliment. It, it's a giant compliment because Amazon is known for putting out, you know, really cool technologies out there. You know, Amazon Go being the hallmark for critical retail technology innovation. And Amazon realizing that maybe Amazon Go is not the way to go for physical retail is a key for us because, you know, small format stores were, were not the amount of investments that's needed to build an Amazon Go is extremely high. And retailers usually, if they were to invest in this technology, would not see their return on investment within 10 years. So that makes it extremely difficult for the technology to scale. So if you have noticed, Amazon Go only opens Amazon Go stores. You don't see Amazon Go opening up Amazon Go in, I don't know, your 7-Elevens. Yep. Uh, because return on investment doesn't make sense. Uh, so, so yeah, so, so them building a shopping cart is Amazon kind of saying, hey, you know what? I think Amazon Go probably wouldn't scale in larger stores. I think a cart would. And so that was a big compliment, a huge affirmation of what we're doing. Because for a very long time, for the past two, three years, whenever we fundraise and talk to investors, people always tell us, hey, like, is your shopping cart an intermediary solution before the Amazon goes of the world's takeover? And we'll tell them no, because realistically, the return on investment is not there. Disruption operationally is too big. And it's just too difficult to implement and it's not going to make sense. People don't believe us, but now, now they do. And the second part about that being a big compliment is that Amazon Dash Cards, in the end, is still only going to serve Amazon. We work with retailers who want us to move off from AWS. <laughs> As a part of the contract, they make a sign certain clause that says you will not be using AWS. You'll be using either Azure or Google Cloud. And when we ask them why, they will say, because we don't want Amazon in any way, shape, or form have any access to our data. And I think that's very, a very critical thing here, which is if Amazon has, let's say, the data of Walmart, Amazon could effectively know exactly who is in what, what the Walmart store, what this person has purchased, what Walmart's uh, stocks in their inventory, what does their inventory movement look like, what their pricing is. And that could ruin their entire physical retail business because Amazon could try to acquire this, this customer and make them go online to their Amazon store 
because stock-ups are inventory, they're going to price Amazon goods that would be lower than Walmart goods pricing. Retailers don't want to invite that Trojan horse into their store to kill them later on. So after Amazon Dash Card came out, it actually gave us a huge spike in terms of retail inquiry on what we can do to help them. And a lot of the major retailers are accelerating their pipelines and their, their deployment schedules precisely because of Amazon Dash Card. So in the end, it turned out to be a really good news for us. But in terms of scheduling and timing, how has COVID impacted the business? On one hand, online grocery sales have gone through the roof and foot traffic at retail grocers has gone down slightly. But on the other hand, from a behavior perspective, people want to keep distance from one another and avoid touching things. And according to Fox, you have a solution to this problem. How have these dynamics played out for Caper? Yeah, we've definitely seen uptick in utilizations. Customers are, you know, be waiting to use one of our cars if it's not available. I would say the net effect is let's wait and see. Uh, because you, on one hand, you definitely have more people going online. But after kind of the COVID uh, cases, especially in New York, for example, kind of came down a little bit, we realized that, you know, fewer and fewer, fewer people who originally used e-commerce are not using them anymore. They're going back into the stores. We also noticed the same pattern in, in, in traffic. And at the same time, consumer pattern was contactless shopping. You know, people are demanding for more of that. So across retail industries, all of the players are now looking at what are some contactless checkout solutions so that they could keep their own employees and cashiers safe and they could also keep the shoppers safe. And undoubtedly, this type of behavior is going to stick around post-industry. I don't think the impact of COVID and whatever, because it was such a big shock to the system, whatever that's remnants from that, it's going to take years before people start forgetting about it. And within the next few years is when people start growing habits around using more and more contactless checkout solutions. And on another impact of COVID for a business that's in the business of building something, how has the team adapted to the remote working dynamic? Do you feel more of a need to be in the office considering that you're actually working on Adams? We thought so, but the interesting thing is we also have a China office and when COVID hit, they actually had our China office first. So we started preparing for the for COVID landing in the US before this whole thing landed in, in March. So we prepared, we started preparing like February. And we realized that uh, we actually don't need an office, even though we're working on atoms. We have been shipping hardware to people's homes, <laughs> you know, so they could have like a debug unit of our of our cart, but without the whole hardware frame and all that stuff, but just the essential components. And that was already enough. And traditionally, we have never entertained a possibility of remote hire before. And after this, we realized that we really don't need to be next to each other. So we started hiring, you know, across Brazil, across Indonesia, across many different places. And that really expanded our talent pools by a lot too. Going forward with the environment and how everything is planned out, what is the future of Caper and what's in the pipeline? So we are looking at not only grocery stores, but we're looking at ways to develop hardware and technologies to penetrate just your everyday retail stores, like your regular bookstores, convenience stores, cosmetic stores. So we're rolling out with a new product very soon. And on top of that, we're getting into scale and contract agreements with a couple of our clients. So we'll be announcing that as well. 
But really, the future of Caber is we want to be everywhere in physical retail. We want to be relevant for the shoppers. We want to be able to provide shoppers with a seamless, a magical shopping experience. And hopefully, people will be using it every day. Fantastic to hear. And on a more personal level, Lynn, you've been a banker at the top shops on the street. You've raised capital from some of the most prolific investors on the street. You made Forbes 30 under 30. What does success mean for you? Well, I think the definition of success is happiness. And how you become a happy person is to have very low expectations and very high reality deliveries. And that's what I try to try to do every day is I keep my expectations low, but I always give it my 110% every day. And so that at the end of the day, I can go to bed and I can feel like my day was well spent. And that's success. And interestingly enough, is that something that you try to instill holistically as culture at Caper? Yeah. As a part of our entire culture, I think what we try to instill are a couple of core values. Number one is humility. Staying humble is super important, not, not just for people to get along, but also for self-improvement. When we realize our weakness and our flaws, that's when we can improve and work on it. And uh, diligence is another one. And just overall general, you know, what we call spice of life, which is making sure that we're keeping balance with not only how meaningful is our work, but also how meaningful is our life. And, and you know, within, outside of work, we, we focus on that a lot. And I think, you know, a lot of the times, you know, people will tell me, hey, you know, you've built a really cool product, props to you. But, you know, frankly, I think what I'm most proud of is not the products that we have built, it's the people and the team that we've built. We've essentially built a family, a, a team that will come together, even in the most difficult times, we will come together I remember when we were raising our seed round, people were voluntarily taking salary cuts because they wanted to make sure that we keep the company afloat and minimize burn. And that is the type of caper spirit that we have within our team. And that's something that I'm so uh, extremely proud of. And in terms of keeping up the spirit during COVID while the team is working remote, how do you manage that environment of making sure that your employees are still engaged at the end of the day, but there's also still a unified company experience per se so we do friday retrospectives every week that's a, just a very common thing even before covid we we're doing that basically we get together for lunch and we just reflect on what happened this week what did we do well what did we not do well and that was a critical part of our bonding exercise and you know every 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 week or every other week we would have a vulnerability session which is we just open the floor up and just let people share some things that they're vulnerable with, that they're insecure about. How has COVID impacted them? You know, is there anything that's going on in your life that you're struggling with? And we come together as a company to help each one of them. That has really proven a lot of value in bringing people together in this very difficult times because a lot of people have been stuck at their home for, for three, four months. You know, a lot of people are extremely down and, and bringing everyone together could really lift them up. And then on top of that, really just making sure that we regularly host bi-weekly one-on-ones to check in on people. We also host daily stand-ups to check in on people. So 
are consistently keeping our communications flowing. That was Lynn Gao, CEO and co-founder of Caper. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.